hospice room was crowded. It was a double occupancy hospice room. Both patients were lying in their beds, and their beds were surrounded by friends and and family. And there was lots of crying going on, but there was there was also two patients in each of those beds that were very well loved and respected and admired by their family and their friends. But they were also both approaching the moment of physical death. The families were all shedding a lot of tears, but that's where the similarities stop. One of the families was experiencing a mixture of sadness mixed with joy. Tears mingled together with laughter. The other family was experiencing nothing but sadness and doom. The, if the two patients could have talked, one would have said, I am leaving my home, and the other would have said, I am going home. We've been talking for about two months now about our home. We're in a series called The Afterlife. We'll finish all of this up today. We have looked at nearly every phase of, the, of our existence that is to come after this existence, and we've seen that consistently in each phase of our existence after this one, the follower of Jesus Christ has everything to look forward to and everything to anticipate in the existence that follows this one. We looked, first of all, at physical death. We looked at the intermediate state. We looked at the resurrection. We looked at the judgment day. We looked at hell. And we've now spent, this will be the third Sunday, that we're looking at heaven. And with each of these periods of existence, we've seen that the follower of Jesus Christ has nothing to look forward to except for joy, satisfaction, pleasure, fulfillment, happiness. The one who is not a follower of Jesus Christ has nothing positive to look forward to in the next existence whatsoever. So at every phase, we've seen indescribable happiness and joy, but particularly when we have arrived at this, our final condition or our final state of existence, which is called heaven, which technically doesn't begin until after the judgment day. But as heaven is initiated, we who enter into heaven will do so with resurrected bodies that are imperishable and free from the effects of sin, free from the taint of sin. We will also enter into heaven having just recently experienced the glory of God being manifested over and over and over billions of times on the day of judgment. When one after another, all living beings, all beings who have ever lived, or will be judged by God in His holiness, His judgment, His justice, His mercy, His glory, His majesty. All of those will be put on display for all of humanity to see over and over. And then after that, we begin the existence called heaven, which we've seen so far is, is something to be anticipated with such pleasure and such joy that the words of human language fail to be able to describe it. But we spent three weeks now, this will be the third week, looking at the existence called heaven. First of all, we looked at heaven, the place. We looked at the dimensions of heaven. We looked at the building materials of heaven. We looked at, at some of the physical aspects of New Jerusalem. Then last week, we looked at heaven, the people. We looked at the inhabitants of heaven. Who will they be? What will they be made up of? Uh, what will the population of heaven be made up of? And then today we'll finish this two-month series, or this, uh, yeah, two months, eight weeks. We'll finish this up today by looking at heaven, our activity, the activity of heaven. Now, at the offset this morning, I want to say that when I planned this, I originally was thinking about four Sundays. We would talk about the, the uh, phases of existence leaving, leading up to heaven, and then we'd spend a few Sundays talking about heaven. And I thought, well, that probably is enough time. But you know how things normally go. Usually when we get into a subject, we find that there's always much more to say about that than we'd anticipated. So I said, okay, that's not going to happen to me this time. I'm going to double that amount of time, and I'm going to plan on eight weeks, five weeks for everything leading up to heaven, three weeks for heaven itself. That certainly will be enough time to cover it. However, by the end of the message this morning, you will see that there is still just as much left unsaid as there has been said, particularly about heaven. Some of the things that we won't talk about, the crowns, the rewards, so many things about heaven that, quite frankly, time just doesn't allow for. Next Sunday is our musical service, and then after that is the service before Christmas, so we're out of time for this. We'll just have to be, I guess, content at this point to say we've said a lot of things about our next existence, not everything that Scripture tells us, but indeed today we will we will look at heaven, the activity of heaven. So grab your Bibles, grab your sermon notes, and also, um, with your Bible, go ahead and find the Bible's premier chapter, 
or the premier passage that tells us about the details of heaven. I'm speaking of Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22. As you're finding those, go ahead and grab again your sermon notes and have those handy for you. Now, as we start discussing the activities of heaven, one thing I want to say is that it is, it is helpful to remind ourselves that the Bible speaks extensively about what we will do in heaven. The Bible does not give us necessarily scant information about our activities in heaven. It gives us a wealth of, of information about our activities in heaven. And none of that, none of that is in accordance with the popular view of what we'll do in heaven. There's this, there is this sort of popular view of our activity in heaven that is something like this nebulous sort of haloed creatures floating around on clouds, playing harps and really having nothing to do and, and just, just an existence of purposelessness. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible knows nothing of floating around without purpose, without specific activities that we are engaged in. The Bible describes to us a wealth of activities in which we will partake. Heaven will be a very busy place. There will be no downtime in heaven. We will be occupied with deeply purposeful and deeply meaningful activity. Now, our activity in heaven can be divided up into four categories. The Bible speaks of the four categories of activity in heaven as work, worship, fellowship, and learning. Work, worship, fellowship, and learning. Now, we talked last week about fellowship when we talked about the population of heaven. We talked about the fellowship that we'll have with one another and the fellowship that we'll have with angels and, of course, the fellowship we'll have with God. So we'll skip over that today, but today we'll talk about work and worship and learning. But first, we want to talk about something else that the Bible tells us that our activity in heaven will be about. Our activity in heaven will be a what the Bible calls a Sabbath rest. Heaven is called a Sabbath rest. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 says, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, speaking of our eternal condition. So heaven is described as a Sabbath rest. So how can it be that heaven is both a rest and work at the same time? Well, let's think for just a moment on what a Sabbath rest means. Sabbath, the word Sabbath, doesn't mean rest. It means seven or seventh. And the Bible speaks often of a Sabbath in terms of rest. The command, the fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath is a command to refrain from work. And so I think oftentimes we confuse a Sabbath rest with inactivity. We, Because the Bible so often pairs it together with the idea of rest, we mistakenly confuse that to be inactivity. But the biblical idea of, of rest is not the same as inactivity. The biblical idea of rest is not necessarily taking a nap on the couch on Sunday afternoon, as we have sometimes made it, made it to be. Um, but we're not the only ones that have made this confusion. The Jewish people themselves made such a confusion as well. They confused Sabbath rest with inactivity. And they came up with all kinds of rules and regulations that were designed to limit people's activity. They could only walk a certain distance or they couldn't light a fire on the Sabbath. And all of that was meant to limit the activity that people engaged in because they had confused the idea of a biblical rest with the idea of inactivity. However, the Scriptures teach us, we won't take the time to trace this through the Old Testament teaching of the Sabbath, but the Scriptures teach us that a Sabbath rest is not necessarily inactivity, but instead a Sabbath rest is resting from ordinary activity or mundane activity. That is the whole idea behind a Sabbath rest is that those who participated in it were to refrain from normal activity or ordinary, mundane, tedious sort of activity. So part of keeping the Sabbath is refraining from ordinary mundane activity. And so since our existence in heaven will be one continuous Sabbath rest, what that means for us is that all the activity that we're going to talk about this morning, none of it is mundane. None of it is tedious. None of it is ordinary. None of it is taxing. None of it is to be considered ordinary to us. But instead, it is the opposite of that. It is fresh and it is new and it is vibrant. All of it will be fresh activity. Our activity in heaven will never seem dull. It will never seem ordinary to us. But instead, it will be a rest 
from all the ordinary mundane activity of this life. For example, Revelation chapter 14 tells us that we, uh, blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that we may rest from our labors. The labors that we're resting from are the ordinary, tedious type labors that we engage in here in this life. But those mundane type activities will not follow us into our next existence. Instead, all of our activities that we'll talk about will be exciting and fresh, which is good news for us. Because who really likes to have nothing to do? I don't know of many people, perhaps there are some, but I really don't think I know of anybody that just truly doesn't like to have or or likes to have nothing to do. What we don't care for are doing sometimes the ordinary, mundane activities, the tedious type of activities. But I believe that all of us, given the choice between having nothing to do and having something that is fresh and exciting to do, I think that we'll always choose the latter. You've ever, you've known um, those times maybe when you needed a vacation. It's been a while since you had a vacation. And you thought to yourself as you're working and plodding along in your tedious uh, job, whatever that may be, that you thought to yourself, boy, I really would like to take a vacation. And when I take a vacation, I'm going to do nothing. And then so you planned to do nothing for your vacation. And then your vacation came and you found out that nothing is not very good to do. It's not very exciting. That, that you want to do something. You just want to do something different than what you have been doing. And so as we talk about heaven, all the activities that we'll talk about will be that way. None of them will ever seem ordinary or mundane to us. They will not seem repetitive. They will instead seem very fresh and very new and very engaging. So let's talk about some of the activities that we'll be engaged in. Before we get to the, the categories... I do want to just briefly mention some of the very normal, regular things that we can expect to do in heaven. Does anybody like to eat? Probably all of us, right? We all enjoy eating. We don't necessarily enjoy the after effects of eating, but we do enjoy eating. It's pleasurable to put food into our bodies, especially if it's good tasting food. So scriptures would have us to believe that we should expect to not only eat in heaven, but also to drink as well. Take a look in your Bibles at Revelation chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So here, verse 1 speaks of this river. This is the river, the same river, by the way, that we sing about. When we sing, shall we gather at the river? That's not the Jordan River. That song is about gathering at the river that flows from the throne of God. And this is the river that we sing about. It is the river that is called the water of life. And so as the water of life, we would expect this to mean that we would somehow ingest this water or we would drink this water. And so being heavenly water, being divine water, we would also expect this to be, this to be the, uh, the, the type of water that has a taste unlike anything we've tasted on this earth. It would be divine in nature, and so it would it would seemingly have a taste that would be more pleasant than any other liquid that we have ever drank. Plus, in addition to that, we can also expect to taste that water with taste buds that are not fallen. You know that your taste buds are part of the rest of your body that is corrupted by the effects, the effects of sin. And sin has a corrupting effect on all of our bodies in such a way that even our taste buds are not, are not tasting the way that they were designed to taste. You ever have a cold and things just don't taste right when you have a cold? Or um, sometimes maybe you're, you're taking a certain medicine that causes things to not taste right. And all of that is sort of a result of the fallen state in which we live. However, in our redeemed bodies, in our glorified, imperishable bodies, we can expect our senses to work as perfectly as they were designed to work, which means that the water of the river of life will taste to us like nothing refreshing that we've drank in this life. But also notice the tree, the tree that gives fruit. And in fact, we're told that it gives a different fruit for each month of the year. So God is providing for us a fruit there with a great variety. In fact, he goes to the trouble to have a uh, to have a tree that produces a different fruit every month. Now, no tree here on earth produces a different fruit any month of the year. 
A tree only produces one type of fruit here, but in that existence there is this tree of life, each month producing a different fruit. We can expect the same sort of thing, that the fruit from that tree will have a taste to us that is beyond description. Not only is it heavenly fruit, divine fruit, but it's also being tasted with taste buds that are not fallen any longer. And we'll eat of that fruit of the tree, and we won't do so for sustenance. In heaven, it won't be as though we have to drink and eat in order to live, because again, we'll be living in imperishable bodies, bodies that cannot die or cannot grow sick. So it's not as though we'll eat and drink in order for sustenance, but we'll eat and drink in order for pleasure. And that pleasure will seemingly be very great. But also there's another reason that seems to be implied in the passage for us, that we will eat and drink of the river of of life and the tree of life. And that reason is for um, something to do with our benefit. Somehow the tree of life and the river of life are beneficial for us to partake in. Now it doesn't tell us exactly why or how that is, but it does tell us in very clear terms that Something of benefit comes to us as we eat and drink of the tree, or eat and drink of the tree and the river. <clears throat> the leaves are described as being um, for the healing of the nations. Now, the word that John uses there is the word therapia, from which we get our word therapeutic. So, there's something about the tree that's therapeutic to us. And again. It's not described to us what that is or what that may be. But as we eat and drink of that, of that tree and that river, we're partaking of food that tastes nothing like any pizza or cheeseburger or T-bone steak or piece of chocolate that you have eaten in this life, but tastes far more pleasurable than any of that. And also there is this wholesome effect that we will receive from it, a positive type of effect from it. But also look at the tree and look at the fruit because something else, I think, becomes apparent. It may not be immediately obvious, but something else does become apparent as we think about the tree and the fruit. It says a different tree, or I'm sorry, a different fruit is produced every month. So if we think about that for a moment, then what that is telling us is that in heaven, time will not stop. If there is a different tree every month, then logically that means that there are such things as months in heaven, which means that there are weeks and days and hours and minutes and years and decades in heaven. In other words, in heaven, we can expect to experience the passing of moments just like we experience now. The old song, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more, doesn't seem to be exactly correct because our existence in heaven will not be some sort of nebulous, timeless sort of existence we will also exist within moments, the passing of sequential moments as well. The tree seems to tell that to us. Um, Also, uh, if we think about our bodies, we will exist there in physical bodies just like we exist in physical bodies here. Now, for a physical body to exist, time must exist. Isaac Newton proved that many years ago, that for matter to exist, time also has to exist. So we can expect space and time to also exist as well, and the passing of moments. Think, for example, from Revelation chapter 4, verse 8 in your scripture notes. Uh, They were told there that worship takes place day and night. They never cease to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So day and night speaks to us also of the passing of time or the passing of moments. And even the fact that they speak words, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Even the speaking of words, it's one word after another. So that speaks to us of the passing of moments. So we should not expect to get to heaven and our existence there be so radically different from this one that we just sort of float around in this timeless sort of existence. But instead, we will experience the passing of moments just like we do here. And in those passing of moments, those moments will be filled with activity. So now let's talk about some of the activity in which we'll be engaged. Um, And let's notice, first of all, how good our activity in heaven will be. In heaven, there will be no downtime. We will have all of our moments filled with things to do. So there will be no downtime. Now, on the one hand, you might hear that and you might think, well, that sounds so exhausting, an eternity with no downtime. Because downtime is something that we need now. 
we need physical rest now. We need, we need to sort of unplug and we just need to sort of chill or vegetate or whatever you want to describe it as. We need downtime now. So the thought of an eternity without downtime might seem like an unpleasant thought. However, let's think about our existence in heaven. And let's think specifically about the fact that the curse of sin is removed. Look at chapter 22, verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. So the curse of sin is gone. Now think for a moment about the curse of sin and what the curse of sin has done to you, specifically to your body. When the curse was pronounced upon Adam in Genesis chapter 3, we read this, that God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So, fatigue is a result of the fall. It is part of the curse of sin. Weariness is part of the curse of sin. Frustration and toil, as we engage in our activities here in this life, to whatever degree those are frustrating to you or toilsome or tiresome or weary to you, that is the degree to which the curse of sin has affected your activities. And so now the curse of sin is gone, meaning that all fatigue is gone, all weariness is gone, all tiresomeness, all frustration. Remember again, the Sabbath rest means that all of our activity in heaven will be fresh and new and engaging and vibrant. None of it will be tedious or mundane. And we will engage in that activity with bodies and minds that do not require downtime or rest time. So the fact that we will be constantly busy in heaven, we shouldn't think of that in terms of what if I was constantly busy now? I would really wear out. We should think of that in terms of the curse being gone and the fullness of our activity is available to us because frustration, toil, weariness, none of that will affect us there. So now let's look specifically at some of the categories of the activities that we'll be engaging in. We talked about work, worship, fellowship, and learning. Last week we talked about fellowship, so let's talk briefly, first of all, about learning. You've often heard it said, probably, that in heaven you will know everything. Everything will be known to you and understood by you, but that's simply not the case. If we, I mean, just think logically about that, if we knew all things and understood all things, we would be equal to God, and certainly that won't be the case. So, although it's true that, as the song says, we will understand it better by and by, that's not the same thing as saying we will understand everything or all things in the by and by. Instead, we will understand much more sharply. Our perception will be much clearer. Our minds will be freed from the curse of sin, and so therefore understanding and even learning will will take place on a whole different curve. However, that is not to say that we will ever possess all knowledge. Instead, we will spend an eternity learning, an eternity growing in our understanding. Now, like like we said about a few moments ago about downtime, the fact that there is no downtime in heaven, may sound unappealing to us at first. The same thing is true, I think, about learning. When we say we'll spend an eternity learning, our first thought may be, well, I'm not quite so sure that that sounds like fun. Because you may be associating learning with perhaps school, learning something that was unpleasant or tedious to learn, learning algebra or high school English and then having to take tests on that. And and you think back to that and you you think, if heaven is an eternity of going to school, then I'm not sure that that's going to be very pleasant. However, let's think through this as, as well in the same way that we thought through our activity. First of all, <clears throat> learning in heaven will be pure enjoy, enjoyment. You may think that um, not everybody enjoys learning in this life. And I would, I think, challenge that. I think that all people do enjoy learning. I think that every human, part of our human nature is that we enjoy learning. Now, that's not to say that we enjoy learning about things that are tedious or uninteresting to us. But again, the Sabbath rest means that there is nothing tedious or anything tiresome in heaven. 
So think about your most favorite activity, your most enjoyable hobby. And I would suggest to you that all of us enjoy learning about the things that we enjoy. Whatever your favorite hobby or activity may be, you enjoy learning about that activity. It's pleasurable to you. So think of learning in heaven in that context. We enjoy, even in this life, in our fallen state, we enjoy learning about those things that we like. In heaven, our total source of joy will be God, and the object of our total delight will be God. And so we'll experience enormous pleasure learning about the object of our delight and the source of our joy. So we will enjoy learning. It will be a most pleasurable thing for us. But also think of this too, that the curse of sin is gone as well. The curse of sin is what makes life tedious and toilsome and frustrating here. And so as if you've ever been frustrated trying to memorize some vocabulary words for a test, that's the curse of sin having its effect upon you. That's what makes that mundane and ordinary and tedious and tiresome. All of that will be taken away. In heaven, we will experience the sheer pleasure of learning about God for eternity. And who will teach us about God? Well, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit in this life now is our instructor. The Holy Spirit is the one who instructs us about the things of God. John 16 verse 13 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. Or 1 Corinthians 2 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So the Spirit of God teaches us the things of God in this life. There's no reason to expect that that would change or be different in heaven. We can expect the Spirit of God to continue to be our eternal teacher, our eternal instructor in heaven. So let's think for a moment about why it is that the Spirit teaches us about the things of God in this life. The purpose for the Spirit's instructing of us in this life is to increase our understanding of God so that our love for Him is deepened and our worship for Him is invigorated. That's the purpose of growing in our understanding of God, so that we love Him more deeply, understanding His character more deeply, understanding His actions more correctly. We are therefore moved to love Him more. And we're also moved to worship Him with greater uh, motivation. You ever had one of those spiritual light bulb moments where something just makes sense and and you go, oh yeah, I get that now. And you want to worship God because of that? Imagine, imagine the taint of sin being removed so that your mind can now comprehend things as it was intended to. Imagine also the barrier between you and God removed. God is now in your very presence. And so the inhibitor of faith is also gone. You know that faith is an inhibitor to our understanding of God. We can only understand God to the point that our faith allows us to understand Him. So faith, in a real way, limits our understanding of God now. In heaven, faith is gone. There is no more faith because we're in God's presence. Faith is not required anymore. So the limiter of faith is removed, meaning that our learning and understanding of God, it's like letting the reins go and just letting the horse run free. And our understanding of God will take on a whole new Curve. It'll take on a whole new aspect. Our perception of Him will be so clearer and so much sharper, but also will be growing at a rapid rate, and it will do that for eternity. Imagine the worship that will emanate from us as our minds for eternity grasp more and more and more about God. We'll never exhaust Him. He's infinite. All of his attributes are infinite. All of his character traits are infinite. So we will never exhaust the character of God, yet we will spend eternity growing in understanding and deepening in love, which is what will be the driving force behind our worship, which we'll talk about in a moment. 
So that's learning. We will spend eternity learning of the object of our delight. Also, let's talk for a moment about work. Now, just like we talked about with learning and with our activity, when we say that heaven will be an eternity of work, that may not be the most pleasant thing for us to hear because work in this life is not necessarily fun. However, um, let's rethink our understanding of work as well. And again, let's think about work in the context of the curse of sin. The curse of sin is what makes work unpleasant now. The curse of sin is what makes it tedious. The curse of sin is what makes it frustrating. And the curse of sin is what makes us tired as we work. But now let me ask this question. Do you enjoy working? If you think about that biblically, I think everybody will have to answer that question, yes. We do enjoy working. We don't enjoy everything about work, but we do enjoy work itself. You know that feeling that you get when a job is done? You can cross it off the list. Job well done. I did my best at that. Now it's done. It's finished. We all have a good feeling that comes from that, from doing a job and doing it well and finishing it. That is from God. Because we were made to be working creatures. We were made to be productive creatures. And God made us with a nature that is a productive nature. And if we are not productive creatures, we just aren't working in the way that God designed us to work. And so we don't, we're just not firing on all cylinders because God designed us to be productive beings. What is unpleasant about work is the frustration that comes with it. The toil, which clearly, from Genesis 3, is a product of the curse of sin. The curse of sin is removed, and the only thing that's remaining is the joy of work. Imagine doing tasks now. That, because because heaven is a Sabbath rest, means none of those tasks are are, uh, mundane or tedious or repetitive. Instead, they're fresh and new. And now imagine engaging in fresh new activities which will never become tedious, never be frustrating, and will never cause fatigue. We'll do that for eternity. The pleasantness of work will remain, but all the frustration will be taken away. Now, what will our work be? Well, Scripture gives us some ideas of what our work will be in heaven. First of all, it tells us of service that we'll do. Look at Revelation 22 and verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him or will serve him. His servants will serve him. That's the same word. um, Or take a look in your sermon notes at Revelation 7, verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So part of the work that we'll do in heaven is a serving of God in his temple. Now, chapter 21 told us that there is no temple in heaven, But chapter 22 tells us that there is a temple in heaven. And that's not hard to put together because we're told that God is the temple. The temple now is a place where people go to encounter God. We will be in the presence of God in heaven, so He is the temple. And we will serve Him in His temple forever. And so think of this. We enjoy serving God now in this world, in this fallen state that we're in. However, we serve God in ways that sometimes are difficult to see, sometimes are difficult to connect together, and it's really hard for us to see the effects of our service to God now. However, in heaven, all of that will be very tangible. It will be very clear and easy to see. So imagine serving God in some tangible, direct way. Now, we don't know exactly what that may be, but we do know that it's clearly put forward as serving of God, serving in His presence. Um, and, and again, imagine now that the curse is gone, so there's no tediousness to it, there's no frustration to it, there's no weariness, there's no repetitiveness that, that is to it. Instead, it is fresh serving of God, new activity, meaningful activity, that we serve Him and we do so with pleasure. Part of loving people now is the enjoyment of serving them. If you love someone, then you derive pleasure from serving them. Now, what often frustrates our service to other people here 
are some of the same things we talked about, weariness, frustration, but also part of what inhibits our service now is the thought that sometimes, well, I'm not very much appreciated for what I'm doing. My service to this person is not being appreciated. Um, maybe they don't even know that I'm doing this, right? And that, that sort of puts a dampener on our service now. However, all that is gone. We will serve in the presence of God, and we will do so with extraordinary pleasure. So we'll serve God. Also, we're also told that our activity in God, will, our activity in heaven, will involve some amount of building and farming. This didn't make it in your sermon notes, but if uh, Brother Harold will put it on the screen, Isaiah 65 verse 21 tells us this, They shall build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat fruit. That comes, eat the fruit of it. So our activity in heaven also seems to involve some sort of construction, some sort of building, and some sort of farming activity. Now, we heard earlier, a couple of weeks ago, about New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is our dwelling place. It is our home. So how exactly Isaiah 65 matches up with New Jerusalem, we're not sure. Perhaps it means that we'll build houses in New Jerusalem and we'll build vineyards in New Jerusalem. We don't know. But the point of Isaiah 65 is this. As we engage in those activities, building, planting vineyards, they will be thoroughly satisfying because that was the whole point. Isaiah goes on to say, you'll build houses and you will inhabit them. No more will someone else inhabit what you build. You will plant vineyards and you will eat of the fruit of it. No more will someone else eat of the fruit that you have planted. In other words, your labors in heaven will be thoroughly satisfying. They also seem to be of a physical nature, but they seem to be of a very satisfying type of nature. So the scriptures speak of building, of farming activities. It also speaks of, quite extensively, of authority, uh, authority work or exercising of authority. One of the things that, again, we'd hope to cover was our crowns and our rewards that we'll receive. Those are closely connected together with authority, but we don't have the time for that. But the scriptures do speak often about our exercising of authority. From Revelation chapter 20, verse 4 through 6, Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. They, Verse 6, They will reign with him for a thousand years. Now that's speaking of persons prior to the day of judgment, the elders, the 24 elders, and it's speaking of a time that's before heaven begins. But the same thing is continued into heaven and it's expanded to all people who will be there. Jesus speaks very, uh, very, I think, clearly about the exercising of authority that will pl- take place in heaven. For example, Matthew 25, verse 23, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Or 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Last week, one of the things that we said was that heaven is only populated by those who endure, those whose faith has endured to the end. So what Paul is saying to Timothy is that all persons who populate heaven will be reigning, ruling type of persons. So our work in heaven will include the exercise of some kind of authority. Now the question that we wrestle with is authority over what? Or authority over whom? That's a question I've many times pondered. If everyone in heaven is exercising authority, then who's under authority? It's like, it's like a whole group of all chiefs and no Indians. In order for there to be authority, there has to be something or someone under the authority. And so as I've pondered about this, Scripture never tells us, but we can nevertheless speculate. Colossians 1 verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So that tells us that all of the heavens and the earth, and Paul's not speaking there of the heaven in the sense of the dwelling place of God, but he's speaking of the heavens, the second heaven, the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, stars, planets, galaxies. If those things were created by Christ, through Christ, and for Christ, then why would we not expect 
those things to be part of the new resurrection, of the new heavens and earth. And so therefore, if the universe will be resurrected to a newness of life, as Revelation 21, 21 verse 1 tells us, then this universe that is so large and so expansive now and so unexplored now, why would we expect it to cease to be in the new heavens and the new earth? If it was created for Christ's glory, for Him and through Him and by Him, why would it not exist in eternity? I think it's safe to assume that the celestial bodies will exist for eternity. Now again, this is pure speculation, but why would a universe exist for eternity like that if God did not want His people to explore it and to to derive pleasure from it, wonder and amazement from it? I think it's not beyond the realm of possibility that the ruling and the authority that we will do is ruling and authority and exercising authority over a universe, a universe of unexplored worlds. Mankind has spent thousands of years exploring one planet. Just think of what God has created that is unseen by us. Sometimes we get glimpses of it from a telescope that's gathering images from so far away that they can only gather the largest of images. But imagine the worlds that God has created. Is it beyond the scope of of imagination to think that, that God would have us to explore and to rule over all that He's created? What a wonderful thought. Again, Scripture never tells us that, but that's not inconsistent with what Scripture says. And imagine the size, imagine the wonder of an entire unexplored universe. Again, pure speculation, but I think it fits the picture. So we see our roles of authority. We see our work that we'll engage in. But lastly, let's speak of our activity of worship in heaven. When we talk about the activities of heaven, nothing else is described in Scripture with such regularity as worship. Whenever the Scriptures give us a description of heaven, it always speaks of the activity of worship taking place. Nothing is spoken about as regularly and consistently as that. Revelation 4 verse 24 says, The elders and the four living beasts are worshiping God. Or I'm sorry, the four living beings are worshiping God. Revelation 7, 9 through 12, the Lamb now enters into the picture. Now He becomes the primary object of worship. Revelation 14 verse 1 through 3, the 144,000 are added to the worshipers. Revelation 19, verse 1 through 10, all of heaven is now seen worshiping. And then chapter 21, chapter 22, the consistent picture is more and more worship. Worship will be continuous. It will be ongoing. It will be vibrant. It will be enthusiastic. It will be the most regular activity that takes place in heaven. In Scripture, we're given three visions of heaven. Three times a vision or a picture of heaven is given. Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1, and the book of Revelation. And all three times when we're given pictures of heaven, the central aspect that we're told about is the throne. Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees his vision. The angels are worshiping at the throne. Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel sees the four living beings, the four living creatures, the four wheels, and then the throne comes down from heaven. And then, of course, the book of Revelation constantly is talking about the throne. Every time heaven is mentioned, the throne is not far away. So the throne of God will be the central aspect of heaven. And the throne of God means the worship of Him. Every time the throne is described, it's described in a context of worship. It's describing those who are around it, worshiping the one who is on it. So we will worship with the most continuous, the most vibrant, ongoing worship than we can imagine. Now, what will that worship be like? Oftentimes, I think we can think of worship as something that's to be silent, reverent, quiet. However, let's look at how the Scriptures describe worship in heaven. It describes it as loud shouts. Revelation 5, verse 12 Revelation 7, verse 10. Revelation 19, verse 6. 
loud shouts, the singing of songs, Revelation 14, verse 3, Revelation 15, verse 3, and the playing of various instruments of all kinds, Revelation 14, verse 2. I think those who may equate, uh, equate worship with silence, you may be in for a surprise in heaven because heaven will not be a quiet place. Heaven will be a loud place with the noise of vibrant, enthusiastic worship. Now, the, he- the scriptures also speak of what we will worship or what aspect of God we will be worshiping as we worship Him. Um, we will worship God for His presence. Ezekiel 1 describes worshiping God clear- simply by the, by the fact that He's present, we worship Him. Or we will worship Him at- for His holy character. Revelation 4, verse 8 Revelation 5, verse 12, Isaiah 6, the uh, the worship of God is described as worshiping Him for His holiness, holy, holy, holy. We will worship Him for His actions, Revelation 4, verse 11. We will worship Him for His judgments, Revelation 15, His judgments are true. But mostly, we see God as being worshipped for His atoning sacrifice. Revelation 5, verse 12, with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We will worship God, I think, more than anything else for His atoning sacrifice that He has made for us. For eternity, that will be what drives our worship. And our worship of Him will be pure. It will be untainted. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that we will worship Him with lips that are unstained from sin. See, all the worship that you've ever given to God is corrupted worship. It's stained worship because every word of praise you can speak is spoken with the same mouth that speaks lies. Every thought of of worship you can think is thought with the same mind that thinks adulterous thoughts. Every, Every aspect of worship that you can give to God now is done so through through a taint of sin. However, the curse is removed And for the first time, we worship God with pure lips that give Him unstained praise, untainted songs of praise and worship. What a glorious worship that will be. Sometimes I think we can think of worship as being tedious. Even now, as we've crossed the 12 o'clock mark, we're thinking of how much longer before we can stop and then go on to the next part of our day. However, That too is the curse of sin. The tediousness, the weariness that can come with our attempts of worshiping God now, even that is removed. And we'll worship Him with no curse, no taint of sin whatsoever. And so it will be our greatest desire and our greatest pleasure to give God consistent, never-ending worship. No one will have to say in heaven, we need to worship. It will be our greatest pleasure there to give Him true pure, unstained worship. Now let me end by saying one more thing. We've talked about what we'll do in heaven, but we haven't talked about what God will do in heaven. I think that there is one place, to my knowledge, there is one place in Scripture that describes God's activity in heaven, other than just being the object of our worship and seated on the throne and being the light and those sorts of things. I think there's one passage that to my knowledge, that describes God's activity it comes from the Old Testament from the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. We will sing over God, and God will sing over us. I mean, it it almost defies the limits of, of believability. God singing and rejoicing and exulting over us. Heaven will indeed be a noisy place, because it says, He will exult over you with loud singing. I have no idea of the volume that God is capable of, but I can imagine that it's very, very loud.
And so the God who created us, chose us before the foundation of the world, sent His Son to atone for our hatred of Him, sent His Spirit to convict us of sin, indwells us with His Spirit, which enables us to know Him and love Him and serve Him, that same God will reward us with crowns for the service that He enabled us to do. And then He will sing over us for the salvation that He made possible. The grace is beyond words. Which is why John struggles so much to put this into words. Because the wonder and the beauty and the amazement of the grace is so overpowering as to defy our minds to comprehend or our our words to even describe. So is this your home? Does this describe your home? When you yourself are lying in that hospice bed, will your thoughts be, I am leaving my home, or will they be, I am going to my home?